Uncovered podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lady. I have experts, enthusiasts, and really smart people I talk to every single week uh, on the podcast to help bootstrap founders get uh, run their brands better, uh, have profitable and sustainable businesses. This week's guest is Abir Syed. He's a CPA-ish is the title on his Twitter handle. And he also does marketing, advertising, Amazon consulting. So a bunch of stuff. Welcome to the show, Abir. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So <laughs> talk to me about the CPA-ish. And <laughs> you have this paid ads background and Amazon consulting. And you got you do a lot of stuff for your clients. So talk to yeah. me a little bit about that. Sure. So I, hopefully I won't make this too long. Because my, my whole journey is kind of just unusual for anybody who does the kind of stuff that I do. Um, so basically, when I was a wee lad, I started off always wanting to be a doctor. That was kind of my thing when I was young. So my entire like education was really just in the sciences, so biology and neurology and all that stuff. Um, and I had good grades, like I was good at it, but f I never thought that this would happen. But when I was about to get into med school, I got the interview and I just got waitlisted at the interview stage. But I never, I never thought that would be the thing that would hold me back. Um, so I spent a year just kind of working in, uh, I was working for a not-for-profit doing mental health stuff, so public speaking in high schools. Applied again, again, didn't get past the interview, and I'm like, you know what, screw this, I'm going to become an accountant. I didn't really have any good reason, I was just like, I was just bitter, I suppose, and young and annoyed, so just went into accounting, got my CPA, I worked at one of the big four accounting firms for several years, so as a manager in audit, which was just a ter terrible experience, I really hated it. Um, and the work was very easy. It was just, you know, the, the corporate culture and stuff didn't really vibe with me. And at a certain point, I got headhunted by a startup in Austin. So I moved over there uh, and I would basically built the accounting department from scratch. So I learned everything I knew about, like, actually running a startup and, and making sure that they had, you know, robust financials and were making good financial decisions, kind of really just getting my hands dirty there. And so, like I said, built the entire accounting department, implemented an ERP. We raised like over $50 million. So did, did some fancy accounting stuff. Uh, but at a certain point, we acquired an e-commerce brand. And let's just say there were some strange HR decisions made and uh, it wasn't really being run to the to the level that we needed it to. And uh, to be honest, I kind of over engineered the accounting department a little bit because I was expecting more growth than we experienced. So it was kind of running on autopilot and I got a little bit bored. So I told the CEO, I'm like, listen, uh, you know, this brand is clearly not being run the way we wanted to. How about I step in? Uh, and he trusted me enough that he let me do it. So at the beginning, we had a bunch of agencies that were working for us. And I basically just spent all my evenings and weekends learning everything I could about marketing, just YouTube and courses and blogs, just everything I could learn. Uh, at the beginning, just to be able to kind of speak the, the language. So when I would talk to the agencies, I'd ask smart questions. But as time went on, I kind of realized that they weren't very good at what they were doing, which is shocking because they're actually a very big agency. But when I started asking the questions, like they were giving me answers, I'm like, I, I think back to them now, and I'm like, yeah, clearly they had no idea what they were doing because some of the answers were so basic. Uh, but even at the time, I kind of picked up on it. So eventually, I just started firing the agencies, started doing everything myself. So I started running the Facebook ads, the Google ads, started doing SEO, blog content, influencer marketing. I was answering every customer support ticket. I was running the emails on Clavio. I was just putting in orders of manufacturer, shipping them to Amazon, just really got my hands super, super dirty. I kind of fell in love with it. At a certain point, I had to uh, quit and move back home just for some family health reasons. And I decided to take that opportunity to start my consulting business. And the philosophy of the business was it was born of the experiences that I had while working in, in that previous uh, experience where uh, I realized there's a lot of, first off, there's a lot of marketing agencies that really don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Um, but there are plenty that do, and the, but the problem is that a lot of times they don't necessarily have a very good understanding of the business fundamentals. And while marketing is obviously a very significant piece of the puzzle for ATTC brand success, it's one piece of the puzzle and they don't necessarily appreciate the financials. And on the flip side, I've almost never met an accountant who knew anything about sales or marketing or revenue or anything like that. So 
that's the other big piece of the puzzle, understanding the financials, but they don't necessarily have enough of an understanding of how a brand grows to be able to give advice on that. And the problem is that a lot of these bootstrapped companies in that, you know, uh, seven figure range, oftentimes it's the founder running everything. And while they are often very, you know, competent, intelligent individuals, they don't necessarily have enough of an understanding of marketing or enough of an understanding of finances to be able to liaise with these two separate entities. So talking to a marketing agency and an accounting firm, because typically those will always be outsourced at that size. And to be able to receive information from either, oftentimes conflicting information, and to be able to synthesize strategy from that knowledge. And for me, that was the opportunity where, uh, and it's a little bit unique a premise, but the opportunity was basically that given that I have a very solid understanding of the financial side and a pretty damn good understanding of the marketing side, I can kind of bridge that gap and be able to give advice to founders that they cannot get from just a Facebook ads guy or just a Google ads person or just a tax accountant. Um, and so that's kind of where, where the, the firm that I currently uh, run kind of came about where it's weirdly, we work on e-commerce brands and we offer accounting services and marketing services. So uh, yeah. that's the uh, strange journey. <laughs> No, that's incredible and it's unique as heck. So I'm glad you shared it. And it's really neat how you're able to step in and, and your uh, CEO trusted you to run the brand and you just got to figure it all out. Yeah, it's really interesting. So what was when, so transitioning from, I have a couple of questions, follow-up questions and stuff, of course. So transitioning from that accounting background and then being almost like essentially a CEO, general manager, whatever kind of role of the brand. Um, what was, what parts did you find the hardest to like grasp onto and what parts were, did you like the most, you know, like when you're transitioning just from finance to all this marketing advertising stuff? So I say uh, one of the more difficult things at the beginning was kind of, uh, I guess, ramping up my own understanding of the marketing side quickly enough. There was definitely an aspect of me not fully trusting some of the agencies that I was working with. And part of that was born from uh, a just the skepticism of being an accountant. Part of it was also what I was learning. And now as a person with much more knowledge than, you know, several years ago when I first started, I can I can say that, yeah, definitely some of those estimates were were oh, correct. Uh, but it was just that it's a it's a very different way of approaching things. And also, I think probably one of the, the, the biggest, I guess, uh, visceral things that I had to change is that, especially because we were a startup, we were burning through cash like crazy. Like we were essentially pre-revenue uh, in terms of like the, the parent organization. And uh, so my mandate for the most part was just trying to protect us from going, running out of money. So for me, it was, I have this, this as an accountant, like this personal inclination to just try to not waste money. Uh, but then when I kind of slept into that other role, it, the premise was that I had to spend money to actually grow the brand and get revenue and everything. So those were, you know, kind of the two sides of things that were at odds, if you will. Uh, but at the same time, that was part of what helped me, uh, what was, what made it easier, which was that I had a very good understanding of what our unit economics were, what sort of cash flow we actually had available, what sort of growth we had to achieve, what kind of CPAs we needed, what sort of retention uh, we had to be able to uh, achieve to be able to, you know, to make the whole uh, project viable. Um, and at the same time, also forecasting was a big part of it. So just being able to do proper, you know, Excel math, if you will, to be able to project out when are we going to run out of inventory? What sort of uh, projections do we have for how much to order to get our unit economics lower, stuff like that. Uh, just being able to kind of wear a lot more of a finance hat when uh, for all the things around the marketing side of things was something that I suppose was a bit of an advantage. Yeah, sweet. Okay. So then <laughs> how, how do you help... Um... It's so like you, you mentioned it in one of in part of your answer was like 
founders don't typically have that background of marketing and accounting. They're usually a product. They're usually a product person. Yeah, ideally. And, yeah. Yeah. And then they like make this cool thing and then they figure out the rest of it later. So how, how, what, at what point do you, would you advise a D2C brand founder to actually hire outside help for either marketing or accounting? At this, like, what stage? What size is it? A revenue amount? That what would you? How would you help guide that? That's a good question. I suppose it's a function of when they're actually ready to scale, and depending on what resources they have from a cash flow perspective. Um, if and and also compared to what the marginal benefit is, right? So if they have some amount of marketing in you know competence in house and can kind of get a little bit of the uh, the the project off the ground, then certainly they want to take that as far as they can. But at a certain point, if they can find a partner that is uh, where the ROI is there, where yeah, sure they're costing you money, but they can actually drive quite a bit of value, then definitely you want to to make that leap as you know to kind of give you a rule of thumb, if you will. I'd say the moment you're doing, you know, at least five figures a month, that that should be something you should be considering, uh, because obviously you've at, at the very least gotten to a point where you've proven out the value proposition of the product, the fact that there is a market for it. And obviously, there's a lot of nuance to that, but at least you're not, you know, uh, you're not likely to just completely crash and burn because there's something there if you're if you're hitting that five figure number. Um, on the accounting side, it can vary a lot depending on the complexity of your business. I mean, if you have one product and you're just kind of, if, if you're drop shipping, for example, sure, you can take forever to, <laughs> you can wait a long time. But if you're manufacturing, if you have a lot of products and, you know, once you start getting into inventory complexity, then maybe it can be worth it to start with someone sooner. But um, at the very least, you should have some amount of like clean-ish bookkeeping being done. Um, so even if that just means working with a freelance bookkeeper or even doing it, just, I mean, generally, I, I would almost never recommend that somebody does it themselves unless they're really just barely getting off the ground because number one, they probably won't do it right. Uh, but number two, even if they kind of do, it's so, it's really not the best use of your time, <laughs> frankly. Bookkeeping to do it well enough is just a very exhausting and tiring thing. Like even I don't like doing it, uh, even though I know I, I can do it right, but it's just, it's it's not worth it. There's so many better things that you could be doing for, for a brand that you're trying to grow. So generally that's something you want to at least make sure is being done at a reasonable enough level because ultimately that data is what's going to be driving a lot of those decisions, right? So in a DTC brand, two of the biggest sources of data for your decision making will be a your financials and b your marketing metrics. Um, so people generally have enough. Uh, I mean, even that might not be entirely true, but people at least have an appreciation of how important it is to be able to kind of understand your marketing metrics. And things are obviously getting a lot messier in, in the land of attribution, but still they, they appreciate that it can be important. Um, and I think a lot of people at the very least, pay lip service to the importance of financial data. They say, nobody will ever tell you, it's like, yeah, you don't need financial data, it's unimportant. But the truth is a lot of people don't necessarily do what's necessary to get the information. And then if they have the information, make good decisions. Like I certainly have those clients where we have set up fantastic processes for them. They have really good data, but they don't really look at it. So, you know, it, I, I get it. It's not the most exciting or fun stuff, but that's kind of where we try to help and guide, you know, almost push the insights rather than just expecting them to, to figure them out. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's uh, you mentioned a scary, scary word of attribution. I'm not going to go down that path right now, uh, but <laughs> especially uh, on this course on Twitter lately, uh, that's been a, a lot. So I'm just going to avoid that for now. But um, you mentioned that the marketing metrics and the financial metrics are the two most important kind of places to hopefully actually get the data, collect it accurately, and then actually use it and then inform future decisions. So what's like, what's, what's like a huge, like common thing or like a big mistake or thing that you see over and over again 
um, before, like when a client does come to you, like maybe considering hiring you, you like take a look at their numbers, they tell you this thing. And then like, you're like, oh wait, you're like, actually this is way off. Is there like a common like problem uh, that you might want to share with uh, <laughs> share with the crowd? Sure, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a few. Uh, it's not uncommon, to, I suppose, to see uh, a lot of brands that just aren't really doing accounting or bookkeeping. Like they don't really have any financial data. For them, they really are just kind of flying by the seat of their bank account. They're like, yeah, I got money. I got cash in the bank, we're, we're good. Uh, so that happens, you know, strangely frequently, even for some larger brands. Um, but besides that, one that is relatively common is people not having accurate COGS numbers. So basically, or their 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 cost per unit numbers are miscalculated. Um, usually not to some egregious level where they're making horrible decisions. I think that the moment you start trying to scale very aggressively and start like riding that fine line where you want to hit like the ROAS that is just above break even, um, when you're when you're playing that game, then you really need that number to be correct because you're if you're off by like whatever, 50 cents or something. Well, it depends on your, you know, the, the, the price of the product. But if you're off by a little bit, like that can completely be the difference between you growing or, or sinking. So it's very common for brands to not have that number accurate. It's not an easy thing to calculate. And to be honest, there's a lot of nuance in, there's a lot of methodologies too, depending on the use case. Uh, you know, there's the correct accounting gap measure of it. And then there's a more like reasonable, this is what helps me make decisions kind of uh, way of calculating it. So that's, that's a common one. Um, the other really big one is that uh, people don't really have any sort of good uh, system built for inventory tracking. It's weirdly common for me to run into a situation where, for example, I'll be running Facebook ads and then one day an ad that's doing fantastic for this one product just crashes and I'm like, what the hell's going on? And then I go, I log into their Shopify and check, I'm like, oh wow, they're out of stock. <laughs> they didn't, A, they didn't tell me, B, I don't think they even realized it because they did not pay attention to their inventory. And so probably one of the most I mean, and, and I know this is a bit of a tall order and a lot of people won't do this because it is kind of difficult, but the thing that I really wish every business did do is have a proper cash flow forecast. Um, and building a very basic version is not horribly difficult, but it's so beneficial for you to be able to kind of make projections and do scenario analysis and understand how your business could be and what you could be achieving rather than just kind of winging it month, month over month. Um, but I, I'd say inventory management, and to be fair, it is not the easiest thing in the world to do always, depending on the complexity or the nature of that business. But that's the thing that I most frequently see done wrong. Got it. Yeah. No, I, that exact scenario you've described, uh, in terms of the ad <laughs> performance and yeah. checking inventory, I've had that happen as well. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I totally can relate. Yeah. I was, uh. Yeah, I helped clients with media buying, and I was like, oh, okay, I guess we're in inventory. So I got right. you. I got you on that. Okay, so how would you – you said it's not terribly difficult for inventory planning or financial cash management to get the basics and the foundation set up. How – would you recommend they hire you to get that set up, or would you like, oh, you don't really need me fully. You just need this basic foundation thing set up. How would you like go about explaining or trying to educate someone to get this the basics? Let's just start with the financial sure. uh, one first. So, so the basics are simple enough that an individual should be able to kind of build a cash flow model that is that kind of serves the purpose. At the very at the very lowest level, if I had to kind of break it down for a, one that would apply to most DTC brands. Put in a line for your revenue. That's a roughly estimated amount of cash flow. And we're talking about if we're focusing mostly on the DTC side, then I'm not talking about you know net thirty revenue invoices that you have to collect on wholesale stuff like that. You know, you make the sale, you get your money from Shopify a day later. So let's just say it's pretty it's pretty uh, pretty tight a turnaround. So you have your revenue line. 
you have a line for your advertising expense, put in a line for payroll and stuff like that, which is every, whatever, two weeks or something like that, any rent payments, stuff, any, anything major if you if you have them. Uh, and then the one big one that you have to add to that is just inventory uh, expenses. So every time you have to do a giant purchase of inventory, assuming you're not drop shipping, just make sure you plug those in. If you do that, even with no formulas, everything is manual, you should be able to project out six months. It should take a person, honestly, no more than an hour or two to be able to build out on Google Sheets. Every every number manually hard-coded, no formulas, just a basic thing. And the really crucial part is then check against actuals. Every month, check against actuals because if you are if you build out a forecast and you don't compare to actuals, you have no idea if you're doing it right. And so you want to compare to the budget to actuals, check if it's right, and if you see there's something wrong, try to figure out why and then adjust your, 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 your forecast accordingly for the, for the next six months. Um, that could be done in honestly like an hour by somebody if they just kind of sat down and put the effort. Once you get into the more fancier level of things, then we can have some more fun with building a financial model. That's when you would want someone like me where we can start uh, turning everything into formulas. We can start building in, you know, aspects for AOV, CAC, uh, you know, your churn, your the ad spend. We can break that down into, you know, a whole bunch of different, we can break it down by products, different inventory levels, all that stuff. Uh, and the nice thing about doing it that way is then that allows for scenario analysis, right? So then you can start saying like, okay, fine. If I were to reduce my CAC by X amount, then how more frequently would I have to buy inventory? How much more advertising money could I spend? All that kind of stuff. So it allows you to play with the numbers to, 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 you know, make decisions around what you'd like to be able to do. Um, but that, that, that becomes a little bit more technically in depth where you need a bit of experience, a bit of expertise and a lot of Excel skill. Yeah. But I see what you're saying, um, that those four basic things of revenue, expenses, inventory, and then marketing, kind of those main categories, should be able to do that manually on your own. Okay, that's good. That's a good start. Yeah. Yeah, to start for sure. Okay. And then I like how you were starting to say advanced stuff in terms of the AOV and different products and the different, you know, because they all have different probably have different margins and it's like this one is 80% maybe this one's 65% gross margin so um, what how what let's let's go back to that advanced a little bit so with those kind of people and you're maybe you're helping them build it out at this point they're your client how do you then use that to inform like actual decisions in the business so like oh we're, we we're gonna on our advertising campaigns on Facebook or Google like cool like are generally like like talk to me like my my first question i have so many but like first one is like yes your gross margin product that's like 80 percent like that sounds better to like advertise for than the 65 percent one but what if your cac is lower for this so like talk to me about like how you work through some of those scenarios well, I mean, it's really just at that point kind of grinding through the math, right? So you, you, you gave a fantastic example where you might have a particular product that has a... Ideally, you have gross margins that percentages that are kind of like within a similar enough range, but you can totally have a lot of scenarios where that does happen. Uh, then it's just considering, okay, fine, how much are you willing to discount one product versus another discount? Which ones you want to put as cross-sells, you know? Or if you do a, a, an upsell at checkout, you want to make sure that you have a margin product which it, where it increases your AOV, but you're not necessarily losing that much money. If you want to be able to use a particular product as your, you know, the one that you get people, the one that advertises best on Facebook, for example. So like you said, it has a better CAC. You have to make sure that the margin for that product makes sense versus what the other products are. Then you want to look at you know other other aspects of if i acquire a person for that product are they more likely to buy the other products sometimes you'll have these instances where people will do i think when you get into 
the industries or the, the niches where you're not necessarily making all your money up front. So something, for example, which is a recurring purchase, whether that be supplements or beauty or something like that. Um, those are the instances where it becomes a lot more important because you're competing against these giant brands that are willing to lose money on a first purchase because they know they're going to make it up on the back end. But in your case, you can hopefully make money on that first purchase, but you need to make sure that your numbers make a lot of sense uh, so that you're making it up later. So for example, you have two products with different margins and different CACs. You don't know if the people that you're acquiring for this one are necessarily going to switch over to the other product, how many purchases they're going to make, what's how how does their LTV differ from the others. So just being able to have that understanding is important. And even in the instance of a, a brand that is uh, growing, Growing, their unit economics are also going to change over time. So for example, they might have a high unit cost very early, but they need to be able to also have projections. That's okay. What sort of CAC can I eventually get to, or what kind of CAC am I targeting later on once I'm able to get at the volumes where these numbers make sense? Uh, and I think especially given uh, the circumstances in the economy now, the importance of being able to make those smarter decisions from a cash flow perspective are very important because, um, when especially you're in those uh, cases where you're making a lot of the margin on the back end and you might be just breaking even on the first purchase um it sometimes makes sense to go negative if you have to because you have invent you have cash tied up in inventory but you if you're not generating that contribution margin then how am i going to pay my salaries uh like i can't <laughs> i can't give product to my employees so there there's a lot of those kinds of decisions that are necessary but if you have a really good understanding of every piece of the puzzle uh it makes it a lot easier to to kind of make those decisions rather than thinking of things in isolation sure okay so then you would help either depending on the scope and the arrangement with these clients you end up either you're doing the facebook ads yourself or you're just advising them on the financial piece to when they're doing the facebook like someone else is doing facebook ads so is that literally like does this then go to like campaign structure and like how you set those up in terms of uh, oh, we have to make sure this product is like separated from this other product. Like, is it that down to that level or is it still more after the fact in Shopify this when you're looking at stuff? Yeah, the scope can vary quite a lot. And we do have some clients that are only marketing, some clients that are only accounting and some the best ones are both. Uh, if they are mostly accounting clients and they have their own marketing or doing it else how, then we won't necessarily go into that depth where we're going to, I mean, unless they want it. But a lot of times it doesn't typically come up where they'll ask for that sort of depth. Uh, we'll go into it with those kinds of decisions on the marketing side if we're also managing the marketing. And it's not that we couldn't technically help a person with those decisions. It's just... Kind of, <laughs> usually the scope just doesn't work out to that, so. Gotcha, okay. So then that's like on paid and that's D2C. And that's like um, usually Facebook, Google, TikTok now. Um, how does this, how does this, what we just talked about, differ at all or, or not when you start to get into wholesale and Amazon? Because you also, I see you also do Amazon stuff. So I know that margins and, uh, pricing and stuff varies that way. So how do you then build into your model, like these different channels and the different costs? So Amazon, to a certain extent, a lot of times will treat it a little DTC-like in that it has, you know, to, to a certain degree, its own, you know, it's a platform that's not owned, but at the same time, you are selling direct to the consumer. You have a lot of control over the volumes that you're pushing, the advertising spend, and the correlation between your ad spend and your revenue is pretty tight, I guess. So from that perspective, there's really just a little bit of that, um, the decisions around the economics of how are you pricing, how much is it cannibalizing your Shopify sales, uh, what what sort of um, tacos are like uh, total advertising cost over sales, which is just Amazon lingo <laughs> for myrrh, I suppose. Um, but 
you know, what sort of target uh, we're, we're comfortable hitting over there. Um, what is helpful, though, is to understand that if for the clients where we do run Amazon and Facebook, like the, the impact of running very strong Facebook ads and how it directly feeds into Amazon if you're not actually sending traffic there is pretty obvious when you're running both. Uh, because a lot of times a, a client is selling like a $33 product and something and they'll charge $7 for shipping. It's like, if I'm running a Facebook ad and somebody sees that product, like, oh, this is great. I want to buy it. They'll just go to Amazon and get free shipping, right? And that happens quite a lot. So being able to manage both where you're able to kind of decide also from a pricing perspective, how do you want to price over on that platform versus that platform? What's, what sort of shipping offers you want to offer on each, considering the margins, considering the extra commissions that Amazon takes, all that stuff is, is pretty relevant. Uh, when it comes to the wholesale side, oftentimes we don't necessarily get into the depth of you know, helping them, you know, with trade spend or, you know, how they want to position at retailers. But obviously if we're managing the financials then it does kind of feed into it. So there is just that aspect of doing the analysis separately for the retail side and the wholesale side, just kind of being able to differentiate between the margins and also helping, you know, sometimes with strategic decisions where uh, a brand, uh, you know, might be, for, for example, one of, one of my clients we're dealing with this now where he wants, to, he's primarily a wholesale brand with a couple of DTC kind of, um, I guess, brands within the, the, the parent. Uh, and he wants to launch more DTC because it's been going well, but he's then considering, okay, what's the uh, pricing that I can launch at that won't upset my wholesale buyers? And then how much of a push would I need to make on the DTC side where after a certain point, I won't care if I upset my wholesale buyers because I'm selling so much more and my margins are so much higher that it's worth it. So even just being able to make those strategic or to have those strategic conversations, it's helpful to have just a very in-depth understanding of what can you achieve on DCC? What are your margins like? How much inventory do you have? How much your wholesale, uh, you know, volume looks like, et cetera. Got that it. kind of yeah. answered the question. I kind of went all over the yeah. place. Yeah. No, no, it's good. Yeah, it did. It did. Um, that's yeah. Um, it's a lot to consider and a lot going on. And <laughs> yeah. so I'm glad that I know who to come to when I have a brand <laughs> eventually at that point, uh, between all those channels and all those different decisions. So I think you're, you're making a strong case for yourself as an important part, nice. uh, <laughs> an important part of a team because I don't think enough people are considering that and using that financial data. They know may maybe they have the basics. They know the cogs and oh yeah, Facebook Ross is telling me this, Shopify yeah. that, Triple Whale this, whatever. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's, I'm starting to see there's a lot more scenarios. No, um, you're totally right. Yeah, I, I, I think. It's interesting because even on, on Twitter, for example, like I often don't bother to post about accounting or financial stuff because I, I just assume it's super boring and nobody cares. <laughs> and it's just like, uh, even I find it just so basic, but I've noticed that even a lot of the uh, the big agency folk and the media buyer types, like even they've been talking a lot more about your financials and your operating margin, your contribution margin and stuff like that, because they're realizing that, especially in an instance where A, advertising costs are going up and B, the economy is doing worse and C, where it's not as easy to have a very confident conversation around marketing performance when you're talking about just the in-platform metrics or just talking about ROAS and stuff like that. And maybe to a certain extent, they're just trying to flex that they are more sophisticated than other uh, other marketers. Uh, but to a certain extent, like it, it is important because at the end of the day, what matters is the business's health and that business's health goes beyond just your ROAS. Yeah, it does. Uh, it goes beyond ROAS for sure. So uh, you've mentioned it and alluded to it a couple of times, like especially through the ups and downs of economy, like through the beginning of the pandemic, which is just yeah, e-commerce, <laughs> D2C, wow. And then now, kind of coming down off of that high, how, what sort of advice, what sort of guidelines, what sort of, how are you communicating with your clients about it? Like, just walk me through that a little bit more about, like, how to navigate this time. 
for the most part, I have not been of the mind of kind of sounding a panicked, uh, you know, kind of approach to things. I think that it's just really being a little bit more conservative with respect to kind of projections and, and assumptions about growth. Um, so not necessarily expecting that things are just going to be kind of on that constant upward trajectory like they have been historically, but just... Uh, maybe taking a little bit more, a little less risk with some of the, with the experiments we do on the marketing side. I think that to a certain extent, and I think this is probably something that applies to all brands and maybe it'll hopefully it doesn't get to that point, but then as things potentially get worse, it's something to just be a lot more aware of that uh, there might be instances where you'll have to start tightening the belt on certain types of marketing investments. So, you know, I love SEO, but realistically, it's the kind of thing where it takes a really long time to materialize. If you take your foot off the gas on the SEO front, okay, cool, you can handle it for, for six months, a year or whatever, um, because at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily turn into revenue so quickly. And even the degradation of SEO is pretty slow. Um, so so things like there might be instances where you have to decide which marketing channels you want to push. And I, I think, especially in a scenario like this, the importance of really robust cash flow modeling is super, super important, right? Um, there might be a, a requirement. I was talking to one client uh, the other day, and it wasn't necessarily within specifically the context of the potential recession, but really speaking about just the fact that uh, they're a client that has, I don't know, something like 5,000, no, maybe maybe more, like 9,000 SKUs, uh, depending on which brand. Like they, they, they have a lot of different SKUs, right? But they have a lot of, they've historically just not done a fantastic job of being able to kind of pay attention to how many SKUs they have and how much inventory of each SKU and what volume they've been moving at. So they have a lot of stagnant inventory. And so to a certain extent, decisions need to be made on the, like I've been telling them, they need to make decisions about A, freeing up the cash tied up in that inventory. And then B, if you have to reduce your offering for a certain while, uh, you know, if you have a lot of variants, a lot of different flavors or a lot of different colors of something, you know, if you have to reduce that for a little while, that's okay. Uh, it, it obviously is a function of like how your relationship with your manufacturers and what your MOQs are like. Like maybe it, it, I can make 10,000 of chocolate and 10,000 of vanilla and it costs me the same, it, like there's no issue there. It's the same MOQ, but in some cases maybe it is, right? Like you, there are separate MOQs. Um, and if that's the case, then maybe you say, okay, I just need to let the less popular one go out of stock because at the very least I'm risking less of my cash being tied up in inventory. So you want to be able to a, uh, tie up less cash in, in, or in anything really that is, uh, that makes it less accessible. You want to have those reserves that you can rely on. Um, and then you also want to just have a very good eye out to at what rate you're burning. Um, it's something that I think given that I used to be in the startup world where we were just burning through cash, like it's, it's, it's a habit that I've kind of built in where I think a lot about how much cash do I have and how quickly am I burning through it? So I think about my, my burn rate a lot. That's the way, that's the way I kind of came up. Uh, and most DTC brands, I, I assume, don't often think about that because for them, it's just it's abundance. Like there's just cash coming from every direction. So for them, it's not necessarily something they think about a lot, but it, it might be a little bit of a discipline that they could start to benefit from thinking that, you know, just in case the worst, the worst happens, I want to make sure that we can sustain ourselves through it. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's not necessarily, oh, panic, helter-skelter, change all this stuff. It's, you know... No, so, so it's more conservative, just being more precise, um, asking the hard questions on the extra inventory, which is uh, you're talking about like un unlocking that cash that's tied up in the old inventory, or old, uh, other, like so many different SKUs there. What are some ways to like push that? Because uh, up until this point that it's not being sold for whatever reason, uh, either it's not being advertised, it's just not as popular, uh, they forgot they had it, <laughs> whatever it is, like, how do you then kind of make that shift? What shifts, what levers can you pull to, like, then pull that, you know, get those, that extra inventory? 
I, it depends to a certain extent on what channels a brand has available. Um, but a couple of ideas, I mean, there's the obvious one where you just put it on discount, but to a certain extent, you also don't want to ruin, you know, you, you don't want to cannibalize the fact that you might have uh, additional revenue available from your main flavors. You also don't want to necessarily damage the brand. So there's opportunities to, for example, do bundling. There's the opportunity to f do upsells at, at checkout where, you know, you buy a bottle of chocolate, get 50% off your vanilla or something like that. Uh, you can go through other channels. It's a lot easier to do discounting on something like wholesale or on channels that are a little less visible, if you will, to, to your DTC audience you know, with caveats, obviously. Uh, and Amazon's also a very good route because Amazon has this one unique thing and I really don't like Amazon, like as a company, as a brand, I've hated doing business with them. I even hate doing, even what I do, I just don't like dealing with them. But I have to give them credit that there's some stuff that they do quite well. And one of the things that I do like about uh, Amazon or that I find is is nice in terms of being working on Amazon is that there's a very tight link between your PPC strategy and your organic revenue. They, unlike something you'll see on, on Google, for example. And so you can use opportunities where you're discounting to actually substantially increase your ranking for certain keywords if they're done strategically. And that allows you to basically give yourself a boost that you can then sustain for higher sales later on. So uh, for one of the brands that we work with in the beauty space, a lot of times if we have excess inventory, we just push it through Amazon. So A, it's an Amazon customer. Most A lot of our sales on Amazon are coming from non-branded searches. So insofar as the non-branded side of things, we're actually increasing the rank and increasing our revenue and acquiring customers. Uh, and we're also not or to a minimized degree harming the revenue that we can capture from the people on the Shopify side where we actually own those customers, we own that relationship and we don't want to ruin our brand either. So um, I guess to, you know, the, the shortest answer, I, I usually recommend just go down Amazon. Uh, realistically, I don't think any brand should not be selling their own product on Amazon. Allowing a reseller to sell your brand just to me is, is crazy. Uh, and I could go through a list of reasons, but it really does not make sense to me for anybody to be doing that. But I think Amazon's a fantastic channel for, for someone, especially if you're targeting non-branded traffic. Uh, you you minimize, minimize the cannibalization while still being able to move inventory, hopefully pretty profitably. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's good insight on Amazon. Uh, it's a <laughs> blessing and a curse uh, sort yeah. of deal there, but uh, yeah. it's a good It's a deal with the devil tip. type of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one, one, one tip um, that I heard and I didn't come up with this, so I can't take credit, but it's always, depending on if it's like a, if more like apparel brand versus like flavors, it's like, uh -huh. oh, get a mystery gift at che yeah. like checkout. And yeah. that's how you could push out the old inventory. No, that's a great idea. Beca because then it's like, oh yeah, 20% off a mystery gift and we'll just pick it for you. And then it's yeah. like, you just push, you know, push all that stuff. So no, no, that's another way in terms of the cross sales and upsells or mystery bundle, mystery box, yeah. that kind of stuff. So no, you're totally right. just, just adding on to that. Actually. Yeah, yeah. So just to, if, if you're able to do that, that's another another fun one. Um, mm -hmm. And people, customers are, I, I've I've gone for those. I know that I know totally, what they're yeah. doing most of the time. But like I'm like, oh yeah, cool. I'll take I'll take an extra shirt. Like yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's exciting. If it's cheaper, <laughs> yeah. If it's cheaper, I'll find out. Yeah. yeah. So that's uh, that's fun. That's cool. Okay. So then um, back more on more on accounting stuff, uh, more financials. As you start to grow and scale, and you want to take this more seriously, like what's and for maybe someone is not as financially literate, like what's the difference or main differences between a bookkeeper versus an accountant versus like a chief fractional, like, sorry, chief financial officer or like fractional CFO kind of stuff. Right, right. Like, can you walk me through that a little bit? Sure. So I guess in, 
if I if I'm simplifying a little bit, yeah, a bookkeeper is essentially going to take the transactional data and plug them into your accounting software. They're just going to put them where it belongs, mostly correctly. If they're good, they'll they'll do a pretty good job. So they'll put them in the correct place. When it comes to then uh, being able to either a decide where things should go or to do any sort of more complex things around process. So for example, uh, being able to decide how do you process uh, transactions that are taking place on Shopify versus wholesale? How do you set up the process for uh, fulfillment of inventory? How do you cost the inventory? Anything like that, that starts to become a little bit more accountant or uh, in our vernacular, usually refer to it as a controller. Um, so that'll be like just a, a step above the bookkeeper. So for example, in our case, our bookkeepers will typically report to a fractional controller and they are kind of more the decision makers or the strategist of the bookkeeping, if mm. you will. Um, and so I think any company that really, if you're doing seven figures, you should have a fractional controller. Like, uh, and again, it varies. If you have a very simple business model, then maybe not. But I think that um, if you have... When, it, when you have inventory, usually there's just a lot of benefit to having a controller. And then I think beyond that, when you start to getting uh, get to the world of modeling or projecting or strategy, that's when a CFO can really help out. Because most controllers, again, I'm really generalizing here, but most controllers will not be the way who will build you a financial model or a cash flow model or stuff like that. Uh, but a CFO would be somebody kind of more in that tier who can do that stuff. Cool. That, that's No, that's good. Um, and so is that, so for you, uh, upcounting is like, like, do you provide all three levels of that? Like kind yes. of bookkeeper, controller, cool, okay. So just depending on the client need, scope, exactly. budget, yeah. stuff like that, yeah. <laughs> exactly, uh, what, what level of depth do they need? Because some, <laughs> some of them just need a bookkeeper. So they just talk directly to the bookkeeper and we're, we're available to answer questions and kind of sort stuff out. Obviously on the tax side, uh, that'll always be necessary, but uh, sometimes it's just not that complex. Uh, but some of them do have a lot more complex needs, so they just move yeah. up the, the ladder. Okay, cool. So a little less, theoretical now let's let's okay. go more into like are there any specific apps or tools for these founders whether it's a shopify app or like whether it's literally like quickbooks uh is what are some or just google sheets if if you're recommending that like are what are some of these like more specific tools or apps that you might want to like lead people to that would help get them started if they're not doing any or much of this financial and accounting stuff? I would say that, I mean, if you're not, assuming you're making some reasonable amount of money, like you're doing <laughs> even four to five figures a month, uh, you should probably have a proper accounting software. The The two most popular are QuickBooks Online or Xero. Uh, we typically lean more towards QuickBooks Online. for They're very comparable. It just happens to be what we, we do more of. Uh, so just making sure that you have something like that. And I think even before you do any sort of accounting or even really get anything complex, it really always makes sense. Just set up a QBO account, hook up your bank, your bank statements or your bank feeds to it. So your cash, your, your bank, your cash accounts and your credit card accounts, just hook them all up, your Amex, whatever, hook it into it. So the data is flowing into it. And then maybe just set up a basic sort of categorization system where at least things are kind of flowing into some amount. So you have at least visibility into where your money is going and how, where things, what's happening. And it's not the most sophisticated, but it's at least something that a founder can do on their own honestly pretty simply with like maybe a, an hour or two a, a month um so just having that at the beginning is good when you want to kind of get a little bit more sophisticated then you want to be able to set up maybe software that will connect your shopify to a qbo in a bit more of a sophisticated way and actually categorize the transactions properly so a2x is a very common one for that uh one that's helpful is to to better um track your expenses so just to be able to kind of have your invoices your receipts all that stuff uh there's a, a bunch of softwares that do that oftentimes we recommend one called dext d-e-x-t um and it's simple enough you just basically you have you take you receive an invoice so you just take a picture of it 
and it just uploads it in category. It has OCR, so it'll usually categorize it reasonably correctly. If you receive it in your email, just forward it to a certain address and it'll kind of plug it in there too. Um, and then there's a cup. You can, it, it'll very much depend on what your inventory situation is. Cause if you're using a 3PL, if you're doing it in-house, depending on what the 3PL has in terms of their systems, you can sometimes be lazy and just work off of Shopify necessary. It uh, depends on if they integrate with Shopify. So a lot of different answers there. At the very basic level, use a Google Sheet. Um, there's a couple of apps that you can integrate to QBO, but then once you start getting into that, let's call it eight-figure range, so once you, you you crack 10 million or whatever, you really should be using a bit more of a robust system like a NetSuite, uh, which is quite common. So yeah, a lot of cool. different options, but but it, it will vary. Like I wouldn't say uh, there's a stack that makes sense for everybody, but QBO, like cool. at the very least, everybody should have something yeah. set up. No, that's good. That's, that's all I wanted is just something to uh, yeah. <laughs> tell people in case that they didn't have that or are looking to switch from some other tool that they got set up with early on. So that's cool. Um, so what we talked a lot about uh, financial and accounting side stuff. We talked a bit about advertising, but um, I want to go more towards uh, marketing and advertising again. So how how with these cash flow projections, they're just projections, right? Yeah. And so it's like, this is the estimated thing. So are you taking like, oh, this is like, if a really good scenario happens, this is what a baseline, or this is like what my, oh, this we're actually not doing so good in terms of like ROAS or MER over here. Like how does that then affect your actual lever pulling in terms of like media buying, uh, creative spend, um, you know, influ like seeding influencers or yeah. stuff like that. So for the most part, uh, usually they don't, most clients don't ask for necessarily the multiple scenario analysis. It's not that we can't do it. It's just a lot of times, even just having something is good enough for them. It's like, okay. so they don't necessarily want a best worst and that kind of thing. I know that it's a, it's more sophisticated an approach to take, but basically once we have visibility into that, we at least have our KPIs that we, or our target metrics that we can be a little bit more confident around. Um, and where we can then, you know, have better decision-making as to, okay, how much more do we want to spend on say the ads side of things? Um, how much do we want to be able to spend on seeding or, or generating? UGC given what we expect to be spending in terms of total ad spend on this particular account. Um, you know, so if I have, for example, for one, one client where we run multiple brands, uh, one of the brands is, you know, it's doing okay, but it's, it's harder to scale, for example. So there, the, the the knowledge of what his margins are, the knowledge of what our expected MER or CAC is, uh, drives how much we're willing to spend on seeding, uh, because we know, you know, realistically how that, <laughs> how much spend we're actually going to put behind it. So we don't need millions of pieces of content, given you know what those expectations are. So just being able to have a good sense of those numbers, uh, a lot of times can drive decisions. And to be totally honest, we don't necessarily always have to get into hyper sophisticated um, situations with every client where we build very robust models, because sometimes it's not really necessary um it's i probably shouldn't say it but realistically if, if i'm running everything sometimes i just have enough of a sense of things where it's like i don't need to necessarily take you know to charge them to build models and stuff it's like i i i get it i i yeah. i see everything that's going on i have a very good sense of it i know what your cag is i know what the spend is going i can i can give good recommendations without necessarily building a whole model just to to, to crunch numbers and present it to you not that we can't pretty easily do it if we have to i see okay cool got it got it i didn't know uh, 
Yeah, I guess it's. I guess I was maybe over or overreaching or like making it more complicated than it could, should be. No, no. I mean, it's it's a good question, right? Like yeah. we, we've done that for giant. I mean, like in a previous life, when we we're talking about really <laughs> massive clients, yeah, like a billion dollars a year type of thing. Like, yeah, fine. There, we'll do those sorts of models, but it's just, for for the smaller ones, it's just not that necessary. Got it. Okay. Cool. Um, and then when you're running. Um, the marketing and ads for clients, either just them or it's a combined with the accounting service. Are you guys also um, helping with the creative or is that also, is that more separate? Is it depending on like, oh, we'll work with your team if you have someone, like how, did, how does that kind of end up working out? We do a little bit of the creative work, but in all honesty, I think uh, because we started back in the day when uh, creative wasn't as <laughs> so like absolutely mandatory in terms of being able to generate like crazy amounts of stuff. Historically, I, the approach that I took was just for the sake of not spreading myself much more thin than I already have. Clearly, uh, I didn't want to take on the creative work as well. So a lot of times I would rely on the clients for them to generate their own creative. And in some cases, that has been a little bit of a thing that I kind of regretted, like letting them generate creative because it's one of those situations where a client will be like, oh, yeah, yeah we can do that. I have a graphic designer. They can generate creative and then a they either just don't and they'll give you like one piece a month uh or it's just not good <laughs> like it's not you know or not optimized for conversions if you will so in those situations like we've sometimes just kind of taken the reins and you don't have to do it out of pocket and i never charge them for it i'll just do the creative myself because i'm like look I, I just don't like not getting results for you so we'll do it uh but realistically i think as we grow that is something that i want to be able to kind of do properly in-house because i think that's just the way the landscape has sort of shifted and I'm, I'm sure all marketers are quite a well aware of this fact that now it's a lot more about the creative um realistically i was part of the reason that the market appealed to me so much is it was so technical and i just love numbers i love data and stuff like that um so there is that aspect where like now the creativity is uh, a lot more necessary and uh, I personally am a reasonably creative guy, but I think I'm just too overwhelmed these days to be creative. I don't have the time to think about creativity or to just kind of like sit back and let my mind wander about like what angles should I test? I don't have time. Yeah. I'm just, I'm constantly just pumping yeah. stuff out. So I, right now, a lot of the clients uh, generate their own creative, but I think that there is definitely an aspect of uh, perhaps a ceiling that we are hitting with some of them based on the creative that they themselves are able to generate. So eventually we'll want to be able to just kind of take the reins and say, yeah, right, let's no. just do this for you. You're not doing it well enough. Yeah, that's the new bottleneck. That's the new area right. to focus on next. Exactly. Let's let's work on, that's a problem. Let's figure out solutions for it. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. So I know I said I wouldn't get into it earlier, but <laughs> sure. attribution. Yeah, so, sure. uh, and just, this is kind of, uh, landing the airplane as we're coming down to the end here, uh, so to speak. So what, and I'm, this is not a, what tools, attribution tools your favorite, but how are you using them, if at all, to affect uh, both the media buying and the financial side of things? Like, how are you actually like, yeah, like what Facebook says this, Triple Well says that, cool. Yeah. But like, like, how are you then using that data from your perspective? I wouldn't say too directly into the financial side, but obviously it is insofar as the attribution tools are necessary to kind of replace some of the metrics around uh, the marketing side of things. Uh, that's obviously where most of the focus is. Um, <clears throat> I think that the most helpful thing that comes from the attribution tools is really just being able to provide that other perspective. One of the other aspects that I do like, especially with Triple Will, is the fact that they can give you a little bit more visibility into uh, new customer acquisition. And I find that insofar as a lot of the metrics are shifting away, maybe from ROAS more to customer acquisition and churn, um, it is helpful to be able to kind of see that, that split a little bit more uh, accurately. But in terms of how I actually use it on 
like in practice, uh, probably not too dissimilar from what a lot of the, what I think are better media buyers are doing, where you just kind of use them in conjunction. I don't necessarily use uh, either of Triple Whale or Northbeam as my absolute source of truth, especially insofar as you know you have uh, aspects of you know view through conversions where that's where it gets a little bit a little bit more muddy. Um, because there's well, I guess two major arguments that kind of happen there. And again, I, I won't get into the depth there unless you want me to, but this argument's happened a million times on Twitter already. Uh, but you have the one aspect where it's like, how accurate is the data when it comes to the view through side of things, and then the other aspect, which is uh, regardless of whether it's accurate or not, Facebook's going to do what it sees. So garbage in, garbage out. You just have to kind of rely on that. So kind of taking into consideration both those arguments, uh, I'll usually just have them open side by side, right? And I'll be running the Facebook campaigns and I'll be making decisions according to what I see on either end. So, uh, you know, if, if the data is supported by Triple Whale or if Triple Whale supports the data that Facebook's saying, fantastic. If not, then I'll make a bit of a gut call being <laughs> deciding how off is it. And then also looking back at the actual, I guess this is the financials or at least the Shopify revenue thing. Like at, at the very least, am I seeing the trend in the direction that I think it should? Um, so, it's a little yeah. more art than I'd like it to be realistic, no, sure, but sure. it kind of has to be that way. So a little bit of gut, yeah. a little bit of experience and looking at Shopify data, Facebook data and triple whale data, well, which includes yeah. Shopify data, I guess, uh, to kind of get a sense how things are going. No, that makes sense. And I think that's um, a good point you, near the end there. You mentioned if Shopify is like reflecting in that, like if yeah. you raise the ad spend 20%, are yeah. you seeing that related exactly. lift? Like, oh no, like we only saw 2%. And we raised yeah. it by 20. Well, <laughs> like, like mm -hmm. let's look into that further. So exactly. that's not a necessarily every single day thing, unless you get to, you're spending tens of thousands a day. But Yeah, because um, you'll always have noise to some degree, right? So it's it, I wish it was such a perfectly clean <laughs> correlation, but it isn't. No, but yeah, no, I, I see. So you're, yeah, it sounds like you're doing what a lot of people are doing, kind of trying to triangulate all these data points. It's imperfect. Yeah. It's, yeah. That sounds good. Um, anything you want to leave us with? Any tip or hot take or uh, topic you want to end with that's like, oh, I wish Matt had asked me this question. Um, no, nothing in particular. Uh, you know what? <laughs> Maybe the only thing I'd say is that really every brand really should be running their own stuff on Amazon. I, I just it's, it's extra margin and it's a lot more volume that you can achieve. And I'd say that for two reasons. On the one hand, most resellers, they're just buying your product, plopping it on Amazon, and just collecting the the sales from your brand equity. Because they're not going to be running ads. They're not going to try to get you to rank for non-branded terms. So you run a Facebook campaign. All of a sudden, people go to Amazon to buy. Your reseller is making that sales. And you might say, oh, I get the margin through wholesale. Yeah, sure, some of it. But A, if you're on, if you're on Amazon yourself, you'll get that extra margin. And you want the extra margin. It's not that hard to just put yourself on Amazon. Uh, and the second side is that you actually can't afford to spend strategically on keywords so that you start acquiring new revenue and new customers from non-branded search. And being able to do that is actually unlocking a significant amount of revenue that you can't necessarily realistically achieve on Shopify. Some people are just Amazon shoppers. Some people who are going to go to Amazon and search, you know, just product title, uh, they weren't going to buy from you on Shopify or through Facebook ads. So there's a lot of margin available there. And uh, the fact that a lot of brands don't necessarily, I, I guess, respect it, if you will, or they just don't take it into consideration, I think it's just a mistake. It's just it's just lost money. Uh, and so to me, that's, that's I think, just an unfortunate thing. That's an opportunity that a lot of people aren't taking advantage of where you can just, yeah, just make more money. That's a, yeah, I like that because it's, it's a pretty, at times, uh, good conversation and debate between, oh, but my, my customer experience, my packaging, and I don't own sure. the data. Sure, but like, 
again, like you said, they're not going to buy anyway, so yeah. it doesn't matter about that experience. They're buying. That person is an Amazon person, yes. so they're going to yes. go find another competitor yeah. or someone else, or just not buy that specific product. So that's, that's a great exactly point it. to to round up with that. Um, Beer, thanks so much for your time. Where yeah, do you want to point people to? What do you want to like? If you want to talk to you, hire you, stuff like that, uh, or do you want to point them? I suppose they could follow me on Twitter. Uh, I say not much, but <laughs> they can always DM me. So a beer underscore CPA. Uh, and our firm's name is upcounting. So upcounting.com. And they can just check out the services we have there or send an email. Uh, so yeah, happy to, happy to connect with people and, and chit chat. So yeah. Right on. <laughs> awesome. Sounds good, man. Really appreciate your time. And, of course. Uh, appreciate this yours. Flew, this flew by. All right. <laughs> and Thanks everyone so else, uh, catch you next time.